morning. So these last, well, we're on week five where we are talking about life's difficult questions. Navigating life as a follower of Jesus um, is not an easy task. And I'm so glad that we are covering these different subjects. And today we're going to talk about why is God allowing suffering in my life? What is his purpose for suffering in my life? Because everyone in here has endured or is enduring some form of suffering today. And my prayer is that you will be encouraged by the words that Paul tells us uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. In James 1, 2 through 4, he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In Psalm 34, 19, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. In Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. These passages talk about having joy in the midst of suffering, to trust Jesus, to trust God, that he has a plan, that God will deliver the afflicted. And we know these words are true, and God is trustworthy. But on January 2nd, 2009, I got a call from my dad while I was watching the Utah-Alabama Sugar Bowl. Son, mommy's dying. What? Mommy's dying and you need to say whatever you need to say to her right now. And I heard my mom gasping for her last breaths. And so I just started saying whatever I could say that was on my heart to her. Mommy, I love you. Mommy, thank you for loving me. Thank you for loving me unconditionally. Thank you for adopting me to be your son when you married my dad. I love you, Mommy. Mom. Son, we have to go. I love you. My mom loves you. We'll talk later. And my mom died soon after. My mom, the faithful woman who played a role in my father coming to faith, by asking him to come to church with her every Sunday from the beginning of their marriage. My mom, the one who adopted two children to be her own so we wouldn't be stepchildren when she married my father. My mom, who loved all of us and gave everything up for us, was dead. These verses that I read to you meant nothing to me anymore at the moment. Because why would God allow my mother to get sick? Why would God allow the most faithful woman I had ever known in my life to die, to get plagued with this disease called MSA, which is multiple system atrophy, and it's basically if you took Parkinson's and ALS and then made a kid, that's what MSA is. Four in 100,000 get this disease, and usually within six to ten years of onset symptoms, they die. And so I said, thank you, God, for letting my mom win the lottery of diseases where there is no chance of survival. Thank you, God, I really appreciate it. Because I was mad at God. I was furious at God. But I was also confused and hurt by God. But I had no idea, I had no clue 
what God had in store for me because of what, what happened on January 2nd, 2009. Let me pray before we begin. Lord, we know you are good. Your word tells us that you are faithful even when times stink. And Father, so often times stink for us as your followers. But Lord, may we choose to cling to your goodness and remember your goodness. May when we are angry and shake our fist at you, you continue to hug us harder to comfort us. Lord, may the words that Paul writes in today's passage comfort us and encourage us to continue pressing on. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So the background to why Paul is writing this, 2 Corinthians, this is actually a third letter to the church at Corinth. The first one, as we studied over a year ago, was a a stern, a harsh letter because the church was not acting like a church. They treated each other poorly, that there was debauchery going on within the church, and Paul reprimanded them for them. But 1 Corinthians didn't fix the problem. Word got to Paul that things were even worse, that they were still really jacked up. And so Paul sent an even more harsh letter with his friend Titus to the church, telling them that they need to get their minds and their hearts right. Now this letter was lost, but we know it was received by the church because we look at the tone here in 2 Corinthians, and Paul writes this enduring and loving epistle to them. And in this letter, he is raw and he is real with them. He talks about his struggles, his afflictions, and his encouragements in the midst of them. And he says that you will experience similar problems like mine because you are now choosing to live righteously for Jesus and that it is a joy and a privilege to do the work of the ministry. Go 100% for God and remember that God will always use imperfect and weak people to do great things for his glory. And the church should always remember to live lives that reflect his holiness. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Typically when we study the word of God, we overlook these introductions, but these are so significant to the letter that Paul will write, or all of them. Paul is claiming apostolic authority here immediately at the beginning of the letter because at the moment there were some in the Corinthian church that were doubting the authenticity of his apostleship. And he was reminding them that he was one of the 13 that Christ ordained to carry out the work of the ministry. And it was because of the will of God. Paul's apostleship was something that God gave him. It wasn't something that he sought out saying, I hope to be an apostle one day. God said, you're going to be an apostle. You're going to do the work of the ministry for me, and you're going to make my name great. And he was with his brother, Timothy, his spiritual son, a guy that Paul discipled deeply and intentionally. And the Corinthians knew who Timothy was. So mentioning Timothy would also show the church, hey, we need to listen up to what they're saying here. And as he addresses the church, it's so exciting because he doesn't just say the church at Corinth. He says the church of God at Corinth because he's wanted to remind them that they don't own the church, that God owns the church. And this is a serious reminder for them to remember that the church belongs to God and therefore they must walk in light always to remain holy and pure. And not just the church at Corinth, all the saints in Achaia. And he uses the word saints the holy, the dedicated ones. And this isn't a super fancy spiritual word that we can achieve on our own merit. This is literally who, for those who call Christ as Lord, 
You are redeemed by the blood of Jesus. You are a saint. And so for those that call on Jesus as Lord, we are all saints. This place of Achaia is in the southern region of Greece. And Paul's intention wasn't just for the letters to go to Corinth, but he wanted all the churches in the surrounding areas to hear what he had to say. He has a message of hope for the church, where church is. Grace to you. This unmerited favor is because of Jesus. Jesus took us from unacceptable to acceptable. And this is the way that believers would greet one another then. Instead of saying hello, believers would say grace to you. How much more powerful is that if we would address one another like that? Grace to you. But not just that, peace. This is the equivalent of the Hebrew word shalom, which means well-being. Peace is a result of grace. That there is no peace without grace. And this is from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. When he calls Jesus Lord, he uses the Greek word kyrios here, which is the Greek translation of Yahweh. So Paul is addressing God as God and Jesus as God, further confirming the deity of Jesus Christ. And this grace is a gift from God and Jesus as God is the, excuse me. This is a gift from God which allows us to have peace with God. And this will all set up the flow of everything we're going to cover in the next eight verses. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Paul usually begins his letters with a thanksgiving or a prayer for the recipients, but here he doesn't. He begins with a benediction. This statement of truth that he begins with is, is one that is based on the 18 benedictions, which is something that we read in the beginning of a worship service in a Jewish synagogue. So it's basically saying, hey guys, it's praise time. And why? Well, we bless God, the God who is the Father of Jesus. Him saying this is to reveal God in a new manner to the worshipers, as the one who sent his son Jesus into the world. Besides worshiping God for being God, we worship him for sending Jesus as the Father of mercies. Right? God is the Father of mercies because he is the source of all mercy. He is characterized by mercy because it's one of his attributes. Mercies is when God takes pity on us. It's when he sees his people in need and he responds and has compassion on them, such as in Exodus 34.6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He's not only the father of mercies, he's the God of all comfort. This is the key statement of everything that we are reading and studying today. Last week we focused on God is light through the words of the Apostle John as we struggle with sin. This week we focus on God being the source of comfort as we deal with suffering. And so we have a new issue this week, but we still have the same focal point, which is God. God is the God of all consolation. In Isaiah 49, 13, sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth, break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. This word comfort is used ten times in verses three to seven. Paraclesis has so much more depth than our English understanding of comfort, which is simple, warm, fuzzy feelings. 
which is very temporal in nature. But God's comfort is one of sympathy and encouragement. Biblical comfort gives solace and confidence, and it strengthens the believer's heart, mind, and soul. Because God's comfort focuses on hope and not despair. God's comfort focuses on joy and not fear. And God's comfort is forward-looking. The image that we must have as we look at this text is one of a person standing alongside another to encourage and support a friend. And Paul uses all comfort, not just some comfort. All comfort because God is the true source of comfort for every situation of life. God gives comfort and not pain. God allows pain in order to give us comfort. The Greek for Holy Spirit is paraclete, and this comes from the word paraklesis, right? The Holy Spirit, which guides us and gives us strength to live out the Christian life, even as we are suffering. And Paul gives praise to our triune God here in this blessing, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. His mercies as God were demonstrated through his son Jesus in giving his life for us and the giving of the Holy Spirit to his followers after Jesus ascended back to heaven in order to help us live. So Paul says, God is good. This God comforts us in all our affliction. God meets us in our affliction. And comforts here is a present tense verb, which means he is constantly comforting us. He is constantly holding us. And that he never withholds any comfort from us because that would go against his very nature of being God. So no matter our affliction, God will always provide enough comfort to help you patiently endure it. The Greek for affliction is thlipsis. It means to be weighed down in an exceeding manner. It means to be pressed and crushed by the tribulations and trials of life. These are the trials that all Christians will experience. It may be, it may be external factors like physical persecution or sickness and disease, etc., or it may be internal factors like depression, mental illness. But I want to be clear about affliction and suffering in the context of today's passage. Because God does allow suffering for two purposes in general. The first one is for discipline. If someone is walking in darkness, God may use suffering to draw them back to himself, just like that in the story of the prodigal son. But he, a lot of times he uses suffering for sanctification. God allows suffering for the purpose of his followers to become more like Jesus in their faith journey. And that is what Paul is addressing here today. And why does God give us comfort? So we can give others comfort. God has purpose in our affliction. One that makes us more sympathetic to others. Such as in Isaiah 41. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. The purpose of experiencing pain and suffering is to comfort others. God not only wants, but he demands us to be conduits of comfort for others. Tony Evans says that the primary way that God comforts people is through people. So if you take a Christian suffering plus God's comfort, that will equal comfort for others. So when we are comforted, it's not just for our benefit. We should and must be able to give it to others. We talked about sins of omission last week. Sins uh, are things that we don't say, don't think, or don't do that would please God. When we see someone in distress and do not comfort, we are sinning against God. 
And I don't say this to sound like a Debbie Downer, but I say this because I want to give a reminder that we have a duty to encourage our fellow brothers and sisters in their affliction. We receive comfort to give comfort to all in need of comfort. So we can't be selective at who we decide to give comfort to. Like, I don't really like Joe over there. Well, guess what? He's your brother, so you give comfort to him. And Paul circles back. I love this. He's like, we comfort others with the comfort that God gave us. Well, I know you just told us that. But Paul circles like that because that's how his mind thinks. He wants this to be a reminder about God being the source and giver of comfort. And that comfort given by believer to other believers is sourced from God. It's all about God. And so Paul wants readers there to understand, for us here today to understand, the importance of when an affliction is that first you go to the Lord for comfort. You praise the Lord in your suffering. You worship the Lord as he comforts you, and then you give this comfort freely to others. But when it comes to comfort, now he talks about Jesus. We will share abundantly in Christ's sufferings. I believe this verse makes most believers cringe because it's not an if, but when we suffer, that we will experience suffering. Because no one likes suffering. Let's be honest. Does anyone here enjoy suffering? I know I don't. I know I don't. So Paul's saying grace and peace, but then suffering's coming. The reader's going to be like, well, what is it? And he's like, yes, it's both. It's a logical statement, though, if you think about it, because if we share in Christ's death and resurrection, then we will share in his sufferings as well. Because for Christians, suffering identifies us as being with Christ and his ministry work. When Paul is writing here about sharing in the sufferings of Jesus, though, he's not talking about the atonement. But he is saying the way that Jesus suffered and the trials that he endured as the God-man living on this earth are ways that we will suffer and hurt as well. You see, the suffering that Paul endured was because of persecution, for doing the Lord's will, for living righteously. But not all affliction is persecution, as Paul was suffering. Affliction is also just dealing with the junk of life as we live it out, just like Jesus did. And so how did Jesus suffer in his 33 years on this earth in order to become the perfect sympathizer? Well, he was born to an unwed mother. He was born into poverty. His life was threatened as a baby. He was from a place that was despicable. His father died when he was young. He had the burden of supporting his mother, brother, and sisters. He was tempted by Satan. He was hated by the religious. He was called insane and demon-possessed. There was opposition within his own family. He was rejected, hated, and slandered by the crowds. He was betrayed by a close friend. He was abandoned by his closest brothers. He was charged and tried while innocent. And he was executed. But Paul is not a Debbie Downer. We share in Christ's sufferings. Guess what? We will share in his comfort abundantly as well because Jesus is our advocate as we studied last week in 1 John 2.1. Jesus is our helper as in Hebrews 2.18 because Christ is the center of comfort for us. He is the source of comfort for us. Christ, our high priest, knows our pain, our pain if we look in Hebrews 4.14-16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one in whom in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. 
Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. There is nothing that we will experience that Jesus cannot understand. There is nothing that we will experience that Jesus cannot comfort, such as when he raised the widow's dead son and said to her, do not weep in Luke 7.13. Or when he comforts his disciples in John 16.33 saying, in me you may have peace, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Paul continues in verses 6 and 7. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. If we are afflicted, Paul's saying, for my affliction, it's for your comfort and salvation. My suffering has a purpose for you. So I can encourage you, my brothers at Corinth. I can encourage you, the saints of Achaia. I can encourage you, the saints at CBC. That suffering has purpose. And Paul's not just saying his suffering, but all suffering has purpose. And when he's talking about salvation in this text, he's not addressing future glory, future deliverance. He's talking about the spiritual health of the church, their sanctification. Because suffering helps us to become more like Jesus. Because in our suffering, we can choose to trust in the Lord and his sovereignty with our heart, mind, and soul, which teaches us to become more like Jesus. And he again says, if we are comforted, it is for your comfort. You think Paul wants them to know something about the purpose of comfort from the Lord? Comfort from the Lord is a straight line comforting, right? I am suffering. God gives me comfort. I give you comfort. You give them comfort. And it just goes down. The expectation isn't that we give comfort so others will recomfort us because that's not grace. But if we are suffering, I hope our brothers and sisters will jump in and comfort us immediately in our pain, that they will share in the hope and comfort. That is an expectation of Christians. In the return of the king, Samwise is comforting Frodo. Sam is reminding Frodo of how great things will be back in the Shire when they return home. But Frodo is so overwhelmed and cannot see the good or hope any longer. Frodo is carrying the burden and it's too much. So Samwise says, come, Mr. Frodo. I can't carry it for you, but I can carry you. So up you get. Come on, Mr. Frodo. Dear Sam will give you a ride. Just tell him where to go and he'll go. See, Samwise is comforting and encouraging and strengthening Frodo with his words and actions because his desire is to comfort his friend. But it makes me think, we can't help comfort one another if we don't know someone needs comfort. When we are suffering and we don't tell others, that is a sin because our pride is not allowing someone the gift of the hurt they have experienced to help comfort you in the hurt you are experiencing at the moment. Paul is saying that, when you reject comfort from others, you're saying, I can do it myself. Paul is telling the church of Corinth, you will endure patiently as you experience the comfort of God. You know, unfortunately, there are biblical doctrines out there that some say if you're suffering, you're not in the will of God. And some in the Corinthian church believe this and we're using that against Paul's apostleship. Why would God want this leader of his to suffer? This false doctrine has led to more suffering for those who are told their faith isn't enough, that they don't pray hard enough. 
But I want to tell you today, an absence of suffering does not mean you have peace with the Lord. And a presence of affliction doesn't mean you have tension with God either. Affliction just happens to be a part of life in a fallen world. And so we patiently endure. And these words are not natural to us, but they are one of the key words of our faith because as we patiently endure, fellow brothers and sisters, as they see us endure, they can become energized by it. They can be stirred up by it. As unbelievers see us patiently endure and they can ask, how do you do so? You can say, Jesus. I speak the name of Jesus. Because we live in a broken world with hurt people. But God doesn't want us to remain in brokenness. God wants us to be restored to him, which is why he sent Jesus to live on this earth among us. Jesus experienced everything we experienced, happiness, laughter, friends, and family, and the bad things as well as I listed previously, so much to the point of his death on the cross. But because he is Lord, he resurrected three days later, and God promises that whoever proclaims Christ as Lord has access to God and his presence forever. This doesn't mean that life will be easy, but it does mean that you have someone that will advocate for you always, someone to comfort you always, someone to carry you always. And so Paul's hope for the Corinthian church in verse 7 is that they will remain unshaken. They will be grounded and steadfast. I am actually confident that you will do so, that you will continue to grow in your faith because of your suffering. Because of your suffering, my suffering, it will all result in comfort from God and one another. Because of our fellowship, our koinonia, the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, which unites us in all things as believers, even in suffering. Paul and the Corinthian church were doing it together which shows us that suffering can lead to church unity. We've had so many people in our church family endure things beyond imagination. Suffering and hurt, death, loss, pain. But I have seen our church rise to the occasion, and my soul has been overjoyed by this, that we have lived into the calling of bearing one another's burdens and building one another up. I can't help but think of the multiple mule trains that have been created, all the work when Harvey happened in restoring houses, Snowmageddon, which is a year ago. We, everyone went out and helped pipes and everything. The prayer chains, the letters, so many trials and afflictions in our church where our church family stood up and said, I want to comfort my brother and sister, not because I want to boast in my name, because I want to boast in the Lord's name in order to testify to his goodness. Suffering can lead to church unity. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Paul now begins a new thought. I think you ought to know what's going on with me. Paul's being real and authentic here with the church. And authenticity is so important for us as followers of Jesus, for us as a church family. And he's describing to them something that happened in Asia. But what happened in Asia can't be found in the biblical text. I should know because I tried to dig around because I'm a nerd. I tried to find out, well, what did happen? And so I was looking in commentaries and all these things. And then I realized I was on a rabbit trail for about an hour while I was prepping. And I realized what happened to Paul in Asia is not what matters. What matters is how Paul responded to what happened in Asia. 
And so for us, right, so often we feel like we need to know every single detail before we can comfort someone. But the reality is that we really just need to know how they're feeling in order to comfort them. Our extending comfort to someone can't be dictated by how much we know of the situation. If someone is hurting, we give comfort. This persecution, though, for Paul was so harsh. He was beyond burdened. He was beyond despairing. Paul isn't glorifying suffering as he writes this verse. He's not saying, hey, guys, go find some suffering and go for it. But he's not saying that me suffering makes me a super Christian either. He's saying that suffering is just a natural part of life because of the fall. Because God's original plan was not to have suffering to be a part of the world. There was no suffering when things were perfect. But when Adam and Eve sinned against God, suffering was one of the consequences of their actions. And this fun gift has been passed down all the way to us today. And we be a part of this world until Jesus returns. So we endure with patience until that day or until we're called home. Whatever happens first. This persecution made Paul think that he was going to die. But he says, it was worth the lesson that I learned because I truly learned to depend on God. I cannot rely on myself because I don't have the strength to do so. I cannot rely on myself because I don't have the ability to do so. I hate that quote, God won't give me more than I can handle. Because it is unbiblical. It is self-centered. The reality is we can't handle anything. Only God can carry us through a trial. That's why God... That's why Paul says God here, not just God, but the God that raises the dead. Paul is proclaiming that God raises the dead because it reminds and encourages him. It comforts us and those suffering about the power of God, the mercy of God, the compassion of God, the comfort of God. And he gives this because we can't raise ourselves from the dead. Only God can do that. So therefore, God only has the one, is the one that has the power to free us from our suffering. If God doesn't ever give us more than we can handle, then we will never need God. Yet the scriptures tell us that we literally need him just to breathe. Suffering teaches us that we are not self-sufficient as believers. Because if you could do it without God, then you don't need God. If you're in a trial and you haven't gone to God, then you're showing him that you don't need him. That his sufficiency isn't enough for you. Which Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3.5, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. We must remember in an age of self-help, where relying on your own inner strength is key, that we must run and rely on God only, that he is our only refuge and strength. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us on him. Now we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You must also help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf with the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. He delivered us. God delivered us physically from his trial. And in this trial, it reminded Paul that trusting God for his comfort and deliverance is more than just saying the words. It's a mindset, one that comes from the comfort and the strength of the Lord. Therefore, Paul has hope. And I'm not talking about the way we use hope today, right? A fingers crossed, a dash of good luck kind of hope. But a biblical hope, one that is the absolute confidence in God's promises for the future because of his faithfulness in the past. He delivered us, he delivers us, he will deliver us. The greatest deliverance to always remember in our salvation is that we were delivered from an eternity in hell. We must always remember the greatest deliverance in our suffering. Being delivered also doesn't mean that the affliction will end in our lifetime, though. The affliction may not end until our death. That sounds bleak and depressing, 
But that just might be the Lord's plan for your life, for my life, for my mom's life. Because we as followers of Jesus have already been delivered. We were delivered from hell. Therefore, suffering reminds us that earth is not our home. And prayer, the essentiality of prayer when it comes to suffering. God acts through prayer. He gives comfort to the hurting believer through the prayers of others. The word help here in the Greek is a really long word. It's sunupurgeo. There are three thoughts to this word. The first one, that ergon, it's a work. It's a deed that's help. Help is also soon. It's cooperation with others and togetherness. The other word in Greek is hupo. It's supporting someone in a manner to sustain them. Think about that. Help is a work. Help is cooperating with others, and help is supporting someone to sustain them. Paul is letting them that their prayers sustained him in his trials and that he prayed for them while he was suffering because we pray for others as we rely on others for prayer. This is what a church family does because we so need one another. Knowing that your brothers and sisters are praying for you will help you press forward because I know I always feel more confident when I know I have people in my corner. Paul also reminds us that we can have a spirit of gratitude in the midst of suffering. It's not easy It may feel impossible. We might not even want to do it, but it can be done because the Holy Spirit helps you endure patiently. God always answers prayers. It may be deliverance from the actual affliction. It may be comfort to endure the affliction. It may be being called home. And one thing that's so difficult about suffering is that God never promises to explain the reason for the suffering to us in our lifetime. As I read earlier, Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, God does promise that everything in the end will be worth it. So why is there suffering in my life? There's a plethora, but today I want you to remember these things, that it prepares us to comfort others. Our hurt will comfort someone else's hurt. It keeps us from depending on ourselves because we are reminded that we can do nothing of our own accord and strength. And it teaches us to be thankful in everything. It serves as a reminder to be grateful for our greatest deliverance, the hope of glory. It teaches us to trust God, to draw closer to God, who is the source of all comfort. And ultimately, it conforms us to become more like Jesus. As we live out our lives as believers, Suffering shows us Jesus. And so let's show Jesus to those that we walk with here on this earth. A couple days after the call, I got on a plane to fly to Beijing by myself. And I brought my Bible to read. And I read it almost the entire trip there. But I don't remember what I read. I remember trying to understand why did my mom die? Why did God let her die? And I was seeking God for answers. And Psalm 34, 4 says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. There was a Chinese couple sitting next to me and they saw me reading my Bible. And they asked, are you reading the Bible? And I said, yes. And they said, you're Christian? And I said, well, yes. And they said, we are too. And they shared with me that they had flown to the United States to get baptized. Now that they were on their way back home to tell their friends and family about Jesus who saved them. 
God comforts me. I return from China, and I am completely exhausted. And Jennifer tells me that she's pregnant when she picks me up from the airport. And it reminds me of the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. God comforts me. See, I can say with all honesty, as I reflect on my life, if God doesn't call my mom home, if my mom doesn't suffer, I don't go into ministry. You see, that was a pivotal point in my life. As I reflect on this journey, without my mom's death, I never fully plug into my small group. You can ask Jeremy Little. I never serve as a volunteer in student ministry. I don't go to seminary. I never have Dave Edwards and Pat Stone in my life. I never have Sonia Stone in my life. I never have Eli Dragna in my life. I never have John Frederick in my life. I never have Ina Graham or Janet Deschamps in my life. I never have a Brody Zapata in my life. I never have Michelle Delon and her family in my life. I don't have a fortune cookie gang in my life. I don't have the Matsons in my life. I don't have an MK Benton in my life. I never have Camp Beloved and Beyond in my life. I never have the plethora of, of students, ministry co-laborers and church staff in my life. I don't have most of you in here in my life because I wouldn't be up here today preaching and testifying to how God comforts in the midst of hurt without my mom's death. I spoke to my father the other night to let him know that I was gonna share about mom. And we cried together. And he shared with me something I had never heard before. Because as my mom's illness progressed, she lost the ability to speak. And my dad asked me to share. He said, if you share one thing about this, please share this with them. About the last clear conversation they had. My mom told my dad that it was unfair that she was ill and dying. So my dad responded, it's not about being unfair. This illness that you have, this suffering, is all a result of sin. Not your sin, but just a result of living in a broken world. But baby, please remember that God is still good. My mom responded, I still have God. What else do I have but God? I still have God. You know, we all have hope, and we hold on to hope as followers of Jesus. But maybe you don't feel hope right now. Maybe you need some comfort from your church family. We have people in our church family that want to pray for you this morning to comfort you because I know everyone in this room needs comforting. Just like I did back on January 2nd, 2009. So I'm going to invite those that were willing to pray with y'all to come forward today. Maybe you're angry. Maybe you're hurt and confused and you're full of despair. But right now, if you need comfort, if you need prayer, we have brothers and sisters that want to pray with you in your church family. If you need comfort, come forward. If you need a reminder of hope to help press on, come forward. Let us comfort one another. And remember the words that Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. 
our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So if you need prayer, come forward and let us pray for one another. Church family, this is our time to respond. If you need prayer with one of these individuals, you can come. If you just want to kneel at the altar, you can come. We're just going to take a moment to respond right before we head out here. Your name is power. Your name is healing. Your name is life. Break every stronghold. Shine through the shadows. Burn like a fire. Your name, Lord. Your name is healing. Your name is healing. Your name is life. Break every stronghold. Shine through the shadows. Burn like a fire. Shout Jesus from the mountains. Jesus in the streets. Jesus in the darkness over every enemy. Jesus for my family, I speak the holy name. Jesus. Shout Jesus from the mountains. Jesus in the streets. Jesus in the darkness over every enemy. Jesus for my family, I speak the holy name. Jesus, sing your name. Your name is power. Your name is healing. Your There are those who are still responding, but uh, our service time needs to come to a close. But that doesn't mean our prayer time is coming to a close. So what we're going to do right now is I'm just going to close this in a word of prayer. But if you still need prayer, our prayer warriors are going to be up here to pray with you. Don't leave. If you need prayer, it's still available. But let me close our time of worship out today. Thank you so much for coming and being a part of what God's doing here. Let's pray. God, thank you for this moment. Thank you for all that you're doing in this place and in hearts right now. Lord, we wanna be sensitive to that and sensitive to your spirit. Lord, continue to move in this place. We celebrate what you have done. Heal the brokenhearted and set the captive free. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.
you're dismissed.